Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. I'll try to keep it quick, but uh, Jamila Rizvi's back. Uh, Love Jamila. Think she's absolutely uh, brilliant. Uh, We talked about a week ago. I need to point that out because obviously there's some huge news stories happening in the world right now that we don't cover in this podcast. If you want some chat around America and the fall of America and what's happening with race, in America and what it might mean uh, for those discussions in Australia. I caught up with Jan Fran yesterday, and I'll try to put that episode out this week as well. Jamila and Jan, I mentioned them together because uh, they're part of a new show called The Briefing, which is a daily news podcast. Uh, Jamila, Jan, Tom Tilly, Annika Smethurst, and a bunch of other people are doing this uh, brilliant new daily news update podcast. So I highly recommend you check that out, and we'll make it a bit of a The Briefing week. So we'll have... Uh, Jamila today and Jan in the next couple of days. If you like this podcast, Willosophy, the best way to support it is Patreon. Patreon.com slash Willosophy, W-I-L-O-S-O-P-H-Y. If you want to message me about the podcast, that's the best place to do it. I always respond to the messages I get on Patreon and I am super grateful for the uh, incredible community there on Patreon that has enabled me to keep putting this podcast out because... There are some costs to putting it out. You know, obviously, we, I want to pay Podcast Mike uh, what he deserves to be paid. James Fosdyke, who does the original artwork, needs to be paid. And there are some costs with running a podcast. At the moment, I am an unemployed stand-up comedian. My parents were a nightmare. So uh, uh, the way that we are covering those costs is through your generous uh, donations and support to the Patreon page. So P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Uh, dot com slash willosophy you can send me a message suggest a guest suggest a question Uh, some of that stuff has already been weaved back into the podcast and if you like the idea of it coming out twice a week what i've been talking to podcast mike about is the idea that perhaps once the lockdown uh, you know uh, finishes more seriously i kind of can get back to doing new episodes face-to-face episodes Um, i've enjoyed doing these catch-up episodes and i think people have enjoyed them too so maybe there's a way i can keep doing both so I was thinking maybe we could do two episodes a week. We could do a brand new episode with a new guest and we could do a catch-up episode. But to do that, we probably need to, just to afford to do that with the overheads of it all, we probably need to currently double what the Patreon contributions are. And I think that's pretty doable. It probably just means that about another 500 of you, if another 500 of you who listen to this podcast, which is a small percentage of the people who actually do listen, are able to join up and donate for just a dollar a month, um, but you know, a little bit more if you can, if we could make another 500 or so donations, I think we could probably get to the point where we could cover two episodes a week. So if that's something you like, and it's something that you're in a, a position that you can afford, because I understand right now, there are so many people who can't afford any extra, um, you know, money going out cause they don't have any money going in. So of course, for those people, I always want to keep the podcast free and accessible to you all. Um, but, uh, if you are in a position to be able to support, uh, now is a good time to be able to do that. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, I hope that you are well, I hope that you are safe. Um, and I hope that you enjoyed this episode with Jamila. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. And uh, here's what's happening during these 
times without precedent in which we are currently living. Uh, I am reconnecting with previous guests on the Philosophy Podcast to have a little update on their life to see if it's changed at all as the world has changed and to see how they're handling everything that we're going through. So uh, the podcast still starts the same. I still ask the guests who they are. So who are you? Uh, My name's Jamila and I haven't left the house in a very long time. Hello, Jamila. Now, it's nice to have you back on the podcast for a start because it's been a little while since we've got to have a chat. So this is uh, very fun. But I'm also very interested in how you've been spending your pandemic time. Has it been something that you have, as somebody who, you know, had been through a whole bunch of health issues yourself and had to struggle through, I imagine, being confined to home a lot of the time or being in restricted conditions about what you could do in a healthy situation, not exposing yourself to, uh, you know, high risk situations when it comes to autoimmune diseases and all those sort of things. I imagine that you've had at least some experience of what we're going through right now. Yeah, I don't want to suggest it hasn't been hard at all and that it hasn't been an adjustment, but both my husband and I early on commented that it kind of didn't feel that different to brain surgery recovery, except that I wasn't in pain, which is good, and everyone else was doing it too, which was, you know, it was like having company. Yeah, it's 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 easier to go through brain surgery recovery when everybody else in the world's also going through brain surgery recovery. It is strange. Like I know we're we're stuck at home, we haven't been able to see people as much, but I have found it far less lonely than when I've been sort of around home or close to home or have to be lying low during a recovery and far less lonely because it does have this sense of kumbaya we're all in it together and I think Aussies on the whole have been pretty good at that bit so it has felt like we're all staying home to look after one another and as one of the people who is likely to get really really sick if I were to catch coronavirus I'm really grateful for that. So you do feel that that has been the general attitude of people because from the media reporting of these things, it's always hard to get a a genuine picture of what is going on. And I think something like this is very locality-based as well. I'm now living in the country, and because there hasn't been many cases around where I'm from, it doesn't even seem like it's a real issue in some ways, you know, in this part of the world. Whereas when I was in the middle of the city, you walk out on the empty streets and you're very aware of the fact that there are millions of people who normally walk the streets of that city who are suddenly staying at home. So do you feel like we have done a good job in this country? Yeah, I think on the whole we have. I was listening to an interview with a social researcher, Rebecca Huntley, a couple of weeks ago, um, who was on a podcast that I'm on called The Briefing. And she was saying Australians kind of like this kind of larrikin, happy-go-lucky attitude. And we like to think we're that, but actually the pandemic and other occasions really do prove the opposite. Like we're actually the ones out buying up toilet paper and snitching on each other if we're too close at the park, that kind of thing. And I have had a real sense that people are really following the rules pretty closely. There was the kind of original Bondi Beach episode, but after that, my sense was that people buckled down pretty hard and fast and there's been some really nice things in my neighborhood especially where um proper suburban Melbourne and the kids have been out playing on bikes together and they're not allowed to get off their bikes so they don't get too close to each other and and everyone's been baking for one another and it's actually felt like bloody wholesome to be honest. (laughs) 
Uh, was your neighbourhood a neighbourhood like that already or has this pandemic suddenly made your neighbourhood be like that? I think we were in part a neighbourhood like that already. There were definitely a bunch of families who were quite close. We do the Christmas party thing, our kids play together, but it almost went up a level. A lot of the um, people who had generally kept to themselves kind of started joining in and I think there was a lot more crossover of generations and people at different stages of life so yeah it has actually uh, felt quite lovely and for me I've got a little boy and he's almost five um, and he's an only child and so he has been living with my husband and I and my mother-in-law who moved in with us at the start of this pandemic and hasn't been going to kinder so he's had no other contact with kids and I actually think it would have been really negative for him if he hadn't had the neighborhood kids to chat to because he would have just become a pretentious little shit, I reckon. Spending <laughs> spending all that time with adults and around adult conversation. It, it, well, it's interesting because that age, so my niece Molly is also that age and it was her first year at, you know, first year at school. And so she went for a couple of weeks, you know, they spent, her parents spent all summer getting her ready for the idea that she was going off to school like her older brother and her two older sisters have already done previous to her because she's the baby of the family. And so she had all this time getting ready and then went for a couple of weeks and then she's been just at home. But for her, the greatest of all, because her brother and her two sisters are all at home as well. So, you know, she couldn't be happier. And they're a little bit worried that they're going to have a bit of trouble getting her back to school because she's she's tried it and then she's tried pandemic and she likes pandemic a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I think, it. you know, to me, that just speaks to the fact that we're all having quite, we're all having the same experience and there's this sort of shared um shared sadness, shared empathy, all of that right now. But at the same time, everyone's also having very different individual experiences. You know, I, I think every day, no one in our household has been sick and no one in our household has been hugely economically impacted. We have in, in a, a small way um, and definitely as someone who, you know, does a lot of public speaking for a living, that not doing much speaking anymore. Um, so there's been an impact, but we haven't lost work entirely. We're not struggling to get by. And those unemployment figures last week just brought it home for me so hard and fast and in a really distressing way, thinking about how rough people are actually doing it. So how this is one of the questions I'm very interested in because there is something about, you know, what you mentioned earlier, if everybody in the world has, you know, recovering from, you know, brain cancer at the same time as you're recovering from brain cancer, then you get that communal experience of it. But at the same time, you're still recovering from brain cancer, which in of itself is a very challenging thing to do. And so I'm very interested in this question of how do we recognize that others are doing this much worse and make sure that our first thoughts for those who are most vulnerable in this situation, but also rationalise the personal hurt that times like this cause to us mm. individually? I, I suppose one of, one of the things that happened when I got sick was that I had a lot of friends who would visit and they'd start talking about something that was happening in their lives that was less than perfect and then they'd stop themselves so they'd start saying oh and you know I, I had this fight with my sister and it was this and it's actually really upset me and oh my god I can't believe I'm talking about this you've got a brain tumor and then they'd pull back and I'd kind of have to say no please tell me because what is hard or bad in your life isn't invalidated by the you know, admittedly harder and badder thing going on in my life. But 
you know, I, if I went back 10 years, I'm sure there would have been something in that moment that was upsetting me or bothering me or scaring me or worrying me. It still did all of those things. I still had those feelings. So I think you've got to kind of recognize everyone is struggling despite the different circumstances while at the same time being aware that there are probably people doing it tougher than you are. It's um, given everybody a sense of what it, it is like to have everything taken out of your hands very quickly, I think. Mm. And I think that that is something that obviously those who are most marginalised in our society face every day. You know, the people, you know, sleeping on the streets and the people who are in these, you know, awful domestic violence situations and just situations, refugees locked up in, you know, island prisons and all these sort of people who have had at some stage their entire world fall apart in a way that they just could not reconcile. And the fact that it's happened to us all, and it, like, and it's not like those people who are most vulnerable, they become even more vulnerable in those situations. But uh, does it give us some insight and empathy that we can take back into when we go back to normal? Uh, you know, that empathy that we've got yeah, maybe when we, we don't just step over that person in the street, we take a little bit more of a moment to, to have a think about what went wrong in their life that meant, meant that they're now sleeping on the street. Yeah, I hope so. I hope people start to recognise that lives and experiences are shaped by external circumstances, that you don't end up homeless or in a violent relationship because you made poor choices in life, that almost always these things are thrust upon us in a significant way or they come as a shock or a surprise and that the decision-making process we're going through in that position is far more complex than others imagine. I don't know. I wonder if that's a bit optimistic though, whether there actually will be a shift. I'd love to see that. But part of me just thinks everyone's going to come out saying, yep, I learned to make sourdough and, you know, I wear more trackies, I put on some weight and that's about it. Um, I... I also wonder how, and I kind of hope, and this is definitely the pie in the sky hoping, I kind of hope it'll be a circuit breaker on some of those social issues. For example, like I think it's almost half of the Australians who were sleeping rough uh, before the pandemic were put up in hotel style accommodation by the government and given a meal three times a day for at least a month or more. And I'm actually not sure that any state government has announced what will happen to those individuals once their time is up, so to speak, that the government has promised them. But what an extraordinary thing for governments to be doing and taxpayers to be investing in, actually getting people off the streets, giving them a chance to sleep in a warm bed and not have to worry day to day about their safety and where their food's going to come from and actually give them some time and space to have an opportunity to get life somewhat back on track. Because if you're sleeping rough every night and you have to worry about staying alive, you don't have time and space to worry about getting a job and um, that doesn't rate when staying alive is number one so I, I kind of hope there'll be some little positives that come from it even if it's just the political pressure of it would look really really bad to just chuck people out again well so that's where it gets very interesting to me because what we've proved is we can fix it you know what we what we've proved during this time is 
if you have the money and you have the rooms and you have the will to actually do it, you know, and, and maybe add the imperative that people sleeping rough on the streets are much likely to carry diseases like this and, you know, infect the general population. So there's been an element of self-interest from society that has had a positive benefit for these people. But we've shown that we can do it and we've shown that we can do it really quickly. So if we do go back to the idea of just not doing it again, we all have to be aware that we just made the decision to not do it. Yeah. Yeah, we made that choice. And it, like, there's no starker example, right, than action on climate change, which we've all messed around with for an entire decade now and done nothing. And we've just proven that when lives are at risk in the short term, we can completely upend economies and societies in order to keep people safe. The question is, can we do that when the impact is just a slightly far away I suppose. Um, And I suspect the answer to that is no. But I really hope that this will fuel people's realisation that we can restructure quite quickly, that we can change things, that life doesn't have to be the way it always was. And maybe all of us flying and commuting all the time doesn't have to be necessary and normal. I think we've shown how quickly we can, to use the word of the moment, pivot. And I hope we see that pivot on a whole lot of other issues. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would love to be optimistic about it. And I'm choosing, I guess, to be optimistic about it because what I choose to be one way or the other probably isn't going to affect it anyway. So I might as well choose to be optimistic about it rather than pessimistic. But there is a big part of my brain that is also... I guess, realistic. And it worries me that exactly what you said is if we can't see it and we can't see the immediate effects of it, when Australia is on fire, we immediately understand that, you know, the fires need to be put out and we have to support those whose houses have been burnt down. But, you know, some of the other effects of climate change, by the time it gets to the everything being on fire or everything underwater, it's they're going to be subtle changes. And our response to even going back out into public I mean, in Australia is a bit of an exception because there are a lot of places that have got on top of it. So we're dipping our toe in the water of the idea. Let's see what happens Mm. if we open up again. But if you look at human beings in general, what they're doing in America, they haven't got a lid on it at all, but they've just opened it up regardless because people are sick and tired of, you know, staying at home or whatever. So if we can't hold our nerve for three months, you know, when there is literally a list of you catching a deadly virus when you go outside the house, then how do we convince people to make those same sacrifices when it's going to be over 10 years or 12 years or 15 years or 20 years or 50 years? I think the only way that happens is with a degree of leadership and that is quite bold and forward thinking and ambitious and willing to be unpopular. Um, And I don't think... That's our current government. Um, In fact, I don't think that's probably any Australian government in in recent memory, sadly. Um, But I do think that's possible, particularly when we've had one of the things I think that's been really useful from a political perspective during this crisis for Australia has been the willingness of premiers and chief ministers to work with the prime minister across party lines. Um, And I think that's one of the things that we would need to see for genuine action on climate change. The states and the federal government have to come to the, have to come to the same table. And at the moment, the federal government's not even at the table and the states are kind of pushing their chairs in and out. I'm torturing this analogy now. (laughs) Uh, But I agree with what you're saying. So how do we 
how do we take what we learn from this in a positive way about the nature of how government can work? You know, the idea that you can still have, you know, different ways of implementing what the end goal is. And we're seeing that on a state to state basis in Australia at the moment. But there is some general consensus on what that end goal is and what it looks like. And people are talking to each other and try to coordinate with each other. It seems that our political system itself has become so adversarial yeah, the idea of point scoring for the sake of point scoring is inbuilt into the process rather than the idea that we're all generally working towards the same goals, but people just have different ideas about how we could best implement those goals. I think there was starting to be some rhetoric earlier in the year and last year saying that Australia was in the same bucket as the UK the US, that our politics was just becoming so completely polarised and people were stuck in their camps and wouldn't find any common ground anymore and we were kind of in a helpless situation. I think that's been undone um, at least a little bit over the last few months because two of the things that I've noticed is, one, Australians still have this enormous faith in institutions, Mm -hmm. not necessarily in politicians, (laughs) but in institutions. We will listen to chief medical officers when they tell us what we need to be doing. Uh, When uh, the High Court makes a decision, if there's a rule of law question, we still pay attention to that, even if we don't like it. Uh, We're willing to listen to government for a greater good. So I think there's a real trust in institutions. And we've definitely seen um, a real respect for experts during this period, which is heartening, because I think we were struggling with that a bit before. And then the other one is, I think Australians do have a really established sense of there needing to be a social safety net where we look after people who are doing it tough. Um, I don't think that always comes to the fore, but during this crisis, there's been no question that I've seen in any great degree that we should have been offering JobKeeper, that we should have been making Newstart more generous than it was and you know like it wasn't exactly generous um that we should be helping people who were losing their jobs that we should be helping struggling small businesses that we should be getting people who were uh, sleeping rough off the streets that we should be putting money into making sure that the arts continues and that there is investment in making sure women who are the subject of domestic violence can be looked after if they're able to leave it's almost been an unquestioning approach to that of Australians going, yep, look after people right now, look after people. And I don't think we're always like that, but in a crisis, I think Australians are pretty good. There's such a strong faith in Medicare, um, for example. And I, I feel like we could build on those two things. I think that sense of looking after one another is there and that faith in institutions, not politicians, is there. And I feel like they're two strong enough building blocks for a genuine response on climate change and potentially a shift in the social compact. Um, Again, I'm being very hopeful. I choose to be optimistic. Well, I I like the optimism because I think that there is some genuine truth at the heart of what you're saying, which is when you meet people, like, you know, individually, I meet a lot more nice people than I meet nasty people. Mm. I meet a lot more, you know, just in any sense of going around the world, not knowing what somebody's background is or political views are, or just in my day-to-day interactions with people in general, I would say that 90, 95% of them, and that's probably even a low number, I would say are pleasant or fun or interesting, or at the very least neutral, you know, like I don't walk away from them feeling worse about the experience. So in that sense, 
sense. And then when you see us act in, like, you know, with the bushfires and then in this time, because I do genuinely believe that there's been great outpourings of people going around their neighbourhood and shopping for the elderly or people providing spaces for people that they don't normally think about or provide spaces for. So I think all that's true. And I just wonder how is it that we get that Liberal voter and that, you know, Greens voter who fought side by side against the bushfires because they both believed that it was the right thing to do. And, you know, they weren't asking each other what party they voted for in that moment. How do we then, you know, transport that into a more interesting national discussion around what our country is meant to be and who it's meant to be for? Mm. I remember there was a book, I think it was back in the 70s by a guy called Nino Colotta, who was an Italian migrant to Australia called They're a Weird Mob. I uh-huh. think it was even I've a film. Um, and in that, I'm very much paraphrasing and being a bit ruder than he was here, but he basically says at a general level, Australians could be a bit racist, um, but at an individual level, they will give you the shirt off their back. And I, I reckon that holds true. I think it's unusual to meet someone who isn't generous at that personal level, but at a collective level, we can sometimes let fear get in the way of that generosity. It's that kind of like, uh, you know, redneck who says, oh, I don't like the Muslims, but Ahmed who lives next door, he's a good bloke. He's really good. We catch up. We have a barbecue. We watch the footy, that kind of thing. Um, so I think the challenge there is about an Australian story that start a narrative that starts to shift the individual to recognising that a collective is made up of a whole bunch of individuals. If I can tell a terrible story about um, neighbourhood loveliness, we had um, early in the pandemic, we, there was a, our streets really divided. There's a bunch of us who are kind of young families and then there's a bunch of older people mostly who live alone and there's two women down the street from me called Judy who both live alone um, and they're both older women and their partners have passed away um, and we were a bit worried about them so we dropped off a note to them on their doorstep with some muffins that just said if you need anything if you need us to go to the chemist or the supermarket or whatever shout um, and this was really early on before we totally kind of locked it down and um, one of the Judys comes to my front doorstep and walked straight in the house. And at the time, my husband had a cold. And I was like, Jodie, get out, get out, <laughs> um, to say thank you for the muffins. And actually, she was fine for groceries, uh, but she would let me know if she needed something else. And I said, oh, good, okay, thanks. And she said, are you doing more baking? And I said, oh, yeah, I tend to – I'm a baker for my mental health. That's my form of meditation. But not so much right now because people have brought bought out all the flour – She came back an hour later with a bag of flour and just gave it to me and said, this is for you. I would like two more of those sets of muffins. I need 24 because I've got some friends coming to afternoon tea. I was just like, first lady, you can't have friends to afternoon tea. Second, I'm not your bakery. Like go buy some muffins. I was trying to be generous in a one-off fashion. You can't can't be getting enough people to your morning tea that need 24 muffins. I know. I also, but I also was really impressed. I was like, I love that Judy is a woman who lives alone. She needs a hand sometimes and she will ask for it. She doesn't wait for help to be offered. She tells you what she needs. Well, what I also like is you offered some help and she came back with a practical list of how you can help. She's like, I don't need groceries. You don't have flour. I've provided flour. This is a, Judy's just from a barter world. She she understands how a transaction works. I was so impressed. Well, uh, 
Before, uh, so before we moved, uh, fled to the hills. Um, uh, then um, before we fled to the hills, um, uh, our next door neighbours uh, were absolutely brilliant, Phil and Susan. And uh, they were, they're older people, very active people normally. And um, so, uh, yeah, feeling confined yeah. by what was going on. So they started uh, baking as well and uh, would pass us over every day in our mailbox. So there would be a delivery in our mailbox that we would have to go out and collect, which was like, you know, the, today's whatever was baked today, we would get a version of that That's every day. awesome. Which was fantastic. But the, also you do eventually feel the need to be giving something back in return you're like oh we've now entered into an arrangement where well we can't just give baked things back in return so then we were just having to we like one day we had extra toilet paper so we gave them some toilet paper we were just <laughs> we were trying to find things around the house just going what can we exchange for all these lovely baked goods that we're getting yeah all our friends in the neighborhood who've got little kids uh, we're all trying to offload all the craft and art because our kids don't let us chuck stuff out because apparently every painting is a masterpiece. So instead we're encouraging them to gift it to a friend's house and then they can chuck it out. That's, that's how we're making room for more craft. I like that. That's good. Uh, so, okay. So there's all this. We're all nice people, you know. Phil and Susan over the fence and everybody sharing their craft. Everybody's a nice person. So why are we then a mean country. And I look, I'll, I'll just say, I believe we have become increasingly mean. I think that, you know, you look at Australia 30 years ago and you look at Australia now and from, I, I and I don't mean individuals necessarily, but I mean what you were talking about before, which is that broader picture of what Australia is and what its place in the world is and how it's led. And I often think we are a nation of quite nice people who are not led by the best people. So is, A, is that true? Is that what you feel? Or do you have more hope in our politicians than I do and more faith in them or uh, if it is true or if there is any truth to it what's the problem with the system that is stopping the normal you know general niceness of Australians being reflected in our you know, government and our body politic that is a big question that is a big question it was a question in three parts and it didn't really have a logical sequence to it. It was a oh, lot of I, thoughts. I'm more meant like philosophically, now, it's, quite a big, it. it's quite a big question. <laughs> um, I feel like there are a few things going on. I think, you know how uh, the data and research shows us that, not just to Australia, but um, when you have a wave of migration from one country to another, that that set of new migrants 20 years later won't want more migration. I think that comes from a sense of we like it here, we feel safe here and we don't want it to change. And I think some of Australia's so-called meanness comes from a sense of caring for and being invested in the kind of society we already have and not wanting it to change and being quite afraid of change. And I think most Australians are pretty naturally conservative, um, not conservative in their politics necessarily, but conservative in the true sense of the word in that they, we don't like rapid change. We have to be convinced of big reforms and we like them to happen slowly. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think part of it is a fear of losing what we've got. Um, and I think our politicians need to be better at communicating that unless this country is reforming and open and generous and progressive then we won't stay with what we've got. The world will change around us and we will be left behind 
probably sinking uh, without anyone to trade with, uh, very alone and sad uh, with a lack of cultural diversity. And we don't want that either. Um, in terms of the politicians, look, I, I, I used to work in politics and a lot of my friends still work in politics and increasingly are going into parliaments now, which is very weird. Um, so I suppose I have a different view. I'm not really in the chuck all the politicians in the bin camp. I think it's a mixture in Parliament. I think there are people who are there for excellent reasons with good intentions who can't get what they want to get done. I think there are systems on both sides of the fence and indeed in the minor parties that are really entrenched that stop each group being as effective as it could be. Having said that, I think there are good, smart, effective people across the Parliament. Um, do worry that there's a sameness to our parliament, that the same kind of people still run to be politicians. I think it's a rare person who wants to be a politician. <laughs> um, and so the pool is narrow to begin with. And then because of the way our two-party system works and pre-selections work, um, we end up with people who are very similar, with similar backgrounds, with similar views, with similar ways of getting things done in the parliament. I think it's how we end up looking to someone like Jackie Lambie. And even if you don't agree with a lot of what she says, you go, oh, she's a breath of fresh air. She does it a bit differently. Um, so I would like to see changes made that mean we can start to break that cookie cutter mould of Australian politics. And I think part of it is about making the career more accessible to people who couldn't be away from home 20 odd weeks a year uh, and couldn't do the relentless hours and travel that's involved and also encourage them to spend more time in the actual community they represent, not just in Canberra. Um, and then I think it's also about party reform, which unfortunately isn't something the rest of us get to vote to change. That's something that happens internally and it's probably the hardest bit. It, it feels to me, and look, I, I am a little bit one of those chuckle politicians in the bin people. And, you know, I do often try to check myself on that a little because I do know that there are, you know, decent people and not just decent people who want to do good things, but there are people who have achieved good things. There are plenty of the things that I hold dear about this country uh, that I don't have to complain about. I can complain about all the other things because the good things were done by good people in good processes. So I acknowledge that that is true, but I do feel that for whatever reason, the way that it is played, and I think that you're right, the people that it attracts because of the way that it's played, you know, it does cut out it being a career path for those who would make it better. And I wonder if we are just not having the conversations enough about, you know, for example, just to really use a very easy example to make a bigger point about what I'm trying to say is the male and female representation. So the argument was always there's more men than there is women because, you know, women, you know, don't want to go away from home or they don't want to do the hours or they, you know, blah, 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 right? Okay. That, that all could kind of be true. Like there could be at least elements of that that are definitely true, right? So if you want equal representation, you can't say that. You've got to say, how do we make this thing work so that equal representation could happen? So you have to look at, like you said, changing not being in Canberra for all this period of time and changing the way that you could, so you can make a space for that. But we don't really have conversations like that from a top 
down perspective. It always seems to be happening, chipping away from the bottom up, and there seems to be no consistent plan on how we're reforming things. And then, as you mentioned, a Jackie Lambie or a Pauline Hanson or a Clive Palmer can actually get a great deal of support from people just because they're different to everything else that is happening. I think on top of that, I think all of that's true, firstly, but I think on top of that comes a level of party discipline, um, particularly in the two major parties, that requires everyone to fall into line. Um, I don't think that's good for anyone. While consensus is important and you have to get to consensus, I think there is an element of if you don't have perfect party unity, then it's a bad look. Um, and the media will pounce on that. And as a result, no one says what they think. The number of times I watched politicians when I worked in Canberra swallow what they really thought because it wasn't the party line and sometimes do so quite heartbreakingly when they really didn't want to um, because they believed the unity was more important. And I think the media's got a bit of a role to play there as well. We've got to, the media's got to move away from the gotcha moments in politics where someone says something a little bit errant or there's a slight difference between what the prime minister expressed something as and what the treasurer expressed something as which clearly is an actual division it's just they said slightly marginally different things and yet we blow it up into something enormous i think the media has got to be better at focusing on the bigger picture and that would give the politicians more space um for disagreement and a little bit of a little bit of good disunity. So, well, this is okay. So, this is where it gets really interesting for me because if you are from one of the yeah the the far left or the far right, you know, then of course this is a very centrist conversation to be having, and I apologise for that, and I understand the idea. You know, we should burn the whole thing down and start again. But let's just say that's not going to happen. Let's look at some more practical solutions with working with what we've got in the meantime. To me. One side saying this is you know right, and then the entire other side saying this is wrong because they have to fall into party line is such an ineffective way of us being even united as a country around an issue. Whereas, if you need ninety votes for something, I would much rather those ninety votes be sixty Labor MPs and thirty Liberal MPs who agree that it's a good idea and that's why it gets through than ninety Labor MPs, thirty of, of whom don't actually want to vote for that, but they've been told to because they're a Labor MP. And that also would give us, as a country, then this idea of hey, we've brought in this like rule or tax or program or whatever, and it's supported by you know sixty percent of the Labor Party and thirty percent of the Liberal Party, and we've come to the consensus that. that that was the most votes and so now we go forward with this idea and like to me what okay why is that not a better system than the system that we have right now well i mean technically the system we have right now allows for that it's the kind of informal structures that happen within the political parties that mean that that is impossible having said that i'm into what you're saying don't get me wrong but having said that i do worry that it slows the policymaking process down. Um, if you look to the United States, for example, that's not so much now, but certainly 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was far more common in the United States for Democrats and Republicans to break, rate, to break, to break ranks and uh, vote with the other side. And that was how a lot of legislation got through. It does slow the process to try and get that many votes and to actually convince that many people and keep them convinced um, and having done a bit of that work in 
to get stuff through the Senate uh, back in the day. Oh my God, the number of times you were taking a phone call at the last minute when someone was like, oh, I think I changed my mind. Um, that was that could be kind of stressful. <laughs> um, so I think it probably could potentially slow the pace of reform, which is a worry. But having said that, I don't know, the closest we've ever had that to that in Australia was the Julia Gillard parliament, not her government, but the parliament, where we had a hung parliament in the Senate and the House of Representatives. Um, and it did take, she did have to go out there and get the votes and make the case and make amendments to multiple members of the House of Reps who weren't members of her own party and her government passed more legislation than any other in history, I believe. So, you know, I just completely argued in a 180 degree way there. I liked it because you took me on a journey of why I was wrong and then took us back to why I was right. I did. I didn't intend to end up there, but that's where I ended up. Now that's how you know this is definitely authentically alive and I have prepared nothing and I've been alone for a long time. (laughs) Um, having had experience within the political system uh, what if you had a magic wand what's the first thing that you would do that would make the current Australian political system better than it is Mm, I only get to pick one so you can start with one like you know it's I mean look to be honest you know it's a podcast you've got time to start with one decide it's number two and then circle back to two and, and a half and then say I right. don't like either of them um no. I would reduce the number of sitting weeks that are in person in Canberra um I would make sure people were spending more time in their communities um and with the people who voted for them or who didn't vote for them uh and less time in this kind of school camp environment where everyone's hanging out in Canberra with people who are all obsessed with politics. Um, And if it was possible, I don't think it is, I would mandate uh, that you had to have spent at least 15 years doing another job. Yeah, I love that because I think bringing some experience of the other world, whatever it would happen to be, I think would be incredibly valuable. Um, uh, You might lose some of the younger voices, perhaps, that, that might be the, the thing that you would years, lose though, from... 15 years, though, you go do another job at age 18, age 21. You can be yeah. back there before 40. Can we settle on 12 years? I reckon okay, 12, <laughs> if, sure. you can, if you can start your well job at 18 and be in parliament at 30, I'll, I'll give you 12. We'll meet in the middle. <laughs> Consensus <laughs> politics. We got the numbers for 12. That's what we could get. <laughs> um, okay, so I like the idea of people doing other jobs. I think that's incredibly good and I love the idea of them not sitting as often because I think that so often that is where as an Australian public we see them the idea that question time is televised is the worst advertisement for Australian politics that they could ever be if they wanted people to think better about politicians the first thing they should do is just shut off the cameras during question time that would be the first thing that I would say I would argue televising it is good for democracy but I agree. No one's at their best during questions. I think that it shouldn't be secret. I'm just saying we shouldn't watch it. <laughs> so <laughs> it should be accessible. You can read the hands. Are you watching? But Are you no, tuning I'm in not. But there every Monday to Thursday of a sitting. My week? point is that one of the things that I say quite often, you know, and again, it, I know that it's incredibly cynical, but it's often how I feel, which is I will just send 
you know, a note to friends about the whole thing being a pantomime. And a lot of that comes from the idea that I worked in the Canberra Press Gallery and I worked on the inside of it and I saw how it all worked. And my lingering sense of it was that it was all too chummy chummy. It was all too much of a pantomime. It all felt like everybody was play acting and living in the same city and then going and having a drink at the same bar and, you know, having sex with the same people and all this sort of and, and I didn't like it and I did not like it as a way the country should be run. And it, it so often meant, and I thought about it recently when Media Watch sent that very ill-advised tweet about Alan Jones sort of saluting the sparring they had had with him over the years without, you know, really considering the real life consequences of the, you know, evil pollutant that Alan Jones had put out into the airwaves and into society. It felt like a fucking pantomime. And this was Media Watch on the ABC, and I was like, "Fuck this! This is this is the exact bullshit that I'm talking about." It all feels like that fucking journalist ball where they all get together and fucking oh, the press gallery. Seriously, ball. I mean, I'm sorry. I know I said I'm not putting them all in the bin, but I'm putting that event in the fucking bin. Like, you shouldn't <laughs> like each other enough to go and do something like that. That's not how it necessarily should work. Particularly the press and the politicians. It's way too cozy. But anyway, rant aside. Um, I like the idea of them being there less because I think that it would stop that being as much of an issue also. Yeah, and I think you could do some of that virtually. I don't see why you couldn't. We've made other things work virtually. I think we can certainly make the committees of parliament work virtually. Um, And also they usually don't have enough legislation to fill the full 20 weeks or so. So there's definitely space. They don't need to be there. And I think on top of that, I think the travel is something that keeps um, women. I think it keeps people with disabilities um, and anyone with caring responsibilities, including for parents or others in their lives, it keeps them out of the parliament. And I worry about those barriers. Um, yeah, I think it'd give a whole lot more flexibility. I also think there's just benefit to how can you ask someone to vote in the interests of the average person they represent when they don't spend much time living like the average person they represent? Like they're not even living in the same place most of the time because they're so often in Canberra. Um, I don't think you understand the ordinary pressures of life if you keep making more and more separations between living an ordinary life. Living an ordinary life and, you know, so often we talk about the idea of family values and you're talking to people who have had to massively restructure their family in a way that is foreign to many of the people they're speaking to. I mean, it's not like there isn't fly-in, fly-out workers or people who travel a lot for work or work in different cities in other industries, but the fact that it's legislated that every one of our representatives suddenly has to you know, be responsible for relating to the majority of people in their experience, but is in this circumstance that is so foreign to that experience all at the same time. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we started by the two of us talking about how the community was feeling around coronavirus, how they were behaving. How do you know how your community is feeling and behaving if you're not in it? You know, I, I feel like as a journalist, half the best stories that I come up with that I want to tell come from being around my local community or being in the city at a show and hearing someone say something or realising that there's a zeitgeist or a sense of something or a particular problem emerging. Um, and so I think we should be maximising that time where we can for politicians um and i think also if you make the job a little bit more family friendly or oh, it's not family friendly it's just more human friendly um you'd get more people wanting to do it and we need that 
we need a more we need a bigger group to choose from. Okay, so we fix politics. Let's talk about journalism. Because, well done. Yeah, well done. <laughs> because you know, one doesn't operate without the other. And as somebody who, you know, is in the business of, you know, journalism, who has that opportunity to not only, you know, um, tell people's stories, but also, you know, keep people to account and to, you know, give different perspectives to those that aren't out there before. Tell me a little bit about your process of finding stories and where stories start for you and what stories are most interesting to you. And I guess even has it changed at all because of what we're going through now? Mm, That's a really good question. I mean, I mostly work as a commentator and a columnist, which means... It's not that I'm not searching for stories. It's that I'm generally looking for a mood or a sense in the community and then working out how to talk about that. So I'm not necessarily um, doing that hard-hitting reporting style of journalism. But, you know, it's ridiculous. I write for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, right? I have a column with them. And I wrote a column on the weekend because they said we want something uplifting about how I've started trying to make sourdough and that the 10 stages of sourdough grief are double those of regular grief because it's that impossible. Um, And it was one of the most read stories on the Sydney Morning Herald that day. And it's because a lot of people are feeling it. And if they're not feeling it, they know someone who's doing that and being an idiot and should just buy bread from the local damn bakery who need to stay in business and employ people. Um, Do something else with your time, folks. Uh, that is a message for myself as much as for others. Um, and I think what that brings home to me is sometimes it's about capturing a mood and capturing a feeling and the complexity of those feelings. Uh, but for me, the stories are paramount. I'm working on a new project at the moment with Future Women, which is part of the Nine Network, uh, where we are talking to older women, mostly over 80, who have lived through pandemics, world wars, the Depression, and can give us a sense of what they went through and how they adjusted and how that period shaped their life Um, to kind of give some learnings on and also some perspective on the current moment. And it is so much fun. Um, I'm just talking to these glorious human beings who've lived so much life and have so much to say um, and at the same time have some really distressing stories to tell. And it it just feels... uh, I try to avoid using the word lucky because I genuinely have instructed people not to use that uh, from a career sense. But um, I I feel really lucky to be hearing their stories and really excited that I'm going to get to tell them because I feel better equipped for what's going on now, having spoken to so many of them. So I'm really excited to share that with others. I know what you mean about the term lucky. Um, I actually like lucky because I think that there is something really beautifully like one of my favorite things about Australia was the idea that, you know, when, uh, who was it? Douglas Horn, Donald Horn, Douglas Horn, is that who it was, who dubbed us the lucky country. Anyway, that was the famous and it was meant to be. It was a sledge. It was a slight. It was putting us down. It was a burn. He was basically saying we were a nation of idiots who just kept stumbling our way you know, to luck. But as a country, we adopted it a little bit as just going, no, we are lucky. Look at where we were born. We won the lottery of life. Look around mm-hmm. the social safety net we have, the opportunities you have in this country, the great you know, um, beauty of this country, the fact that you can have such an incredible life in this country comparatively to the rest of the world, obviously all the exceptions to that that are also inherent in our system. But in a sense, 
but I also understand the idea of not saying it into relation to I have, I, you, you're not lucky to have got the job to do it, but you can feel lucky to be doing such to something. To be hearing that, the story. Yeah, that's right. true. I, I think that they, they can both be true at the same time. Anyway, what is the biggest surprising thing that you've learned out of that process? Because is there something in particular that you went, oh, I didn't think that was the story I was going to hear. I didn't think that was a perspective I was going to get. Oh, it's a sad one um, because I've spoken to a lot of these women and in the kind of pre-interviews we've spoke, spoken mostly about their experiences of war or depression or whatever it might be, often the refugee experience. And um, it's, also, it's actually been experiences during other parts of their lives or that were unrelated to those global events that have hit me the hardest. Um, we didn't go searching necessarily for stories of women who'd experienced family violence and so many of them have. Mm. And it just, I think the more interviews I do, the more it hits home that I like to say that it used to be so normal, but I think it's still pretty normal. Um, but huge numbers of these women who it was just ordinary for them to be harmed by the people they married and the people they lived with. And during a war experience or experience of fleeing a country for whatever reason, you are very much stuck with that person um, and stuck with that violence and the lack of opportunities and help for them to get them out uh, because of social constructs, because of economic constructs, whatever it was. Oh, it's, it's, um, it's actually been really hard and heavy to think about those stories collectively and think about what women have gone through. It's... Um well, it's one of the great – so I was talking to Briggs on this podcast, doing a similar thing to what we're doing now, catching up. And he mentioned one thing in particular, which was when the warnings were first going out, he was like, you know, if you're over 70, um, you know, don't go out of the house, you know, you're in danger. And, of course, if you're Indigenous, if you're over 50, don't go over the house. And he said, we all just brushed past that. That massive discrepancy that you can read everything about in that, which is you have a 20-year less life expectancy at 50, you have the same health as somebody who is 70. It's That's a massive issue that is just brushed over in the way that we say it. And it's been a bit like that in this pandemic debate around getting back to work and getting people back out into society. So often one of the things that is quoted is that we need to decrease the amount of domestic violence. And our solution to that is to get people back to work or get them back to playing golf so that they're not, you know, engaging yeah. in family violence rather than saying, isn't this like that in itself? The idea that one of the motivating factors for us to not have people at home is that people are in, at, a, at risk, uh, you know, at a higher risk of family violence than they were previous to this should just say everything that we need to know about the topic. You'd be safer walking around the community licking things during a pandemic than you would be at home if you're in that situation. And I love what Briggs said because I, I have been shocked by how little people are talking about that. I'm, of course, in one of the other categories that we're told stay home straight away because I have chronic illness. Um, and we talked about luck just before, right? Like I was unlucky. I was born with a, with a one in a million brain tumour that no one could have known I would possibly end up with. My, the realities of my health are purely bad luck. The realities of Indigenous disadvantage and that 20-year gap that, are, that is not just in government figures but is in current government advice 
into the community is not bad luck. It's poor policy and not caring enough. Um, like it's blatant discrimination and not being willing to do the work to properly try and fix it. And, you know, talk about collective shame as a country. It's, it's highlighted some of the things that uh, obviously need the most attention. And it's interesting with uh, certainly with family violence in that, like I remember when I was a journalist, you know, you wouldn't go to a domestic as they would say, you know, if the police yeah. report came through, the cops wouldn't go to a domestic, a journalist certainly wouldn't, wouldn't go to a domestic, mm. that, you know, that was only 30 years ago. And so at least the fact that it is constantly mentioned and being discussed does seem like we're going forward. But for the people who are in the middle of it, like, you know, 30 years is a pretty slow progression for those who are on the front line of of these things. And I, I hope these are the ones that I actually do have some hope about because you can't hear that statistic about Indigenous Australia and think, for fuck's sake, like, you know, this is just... A, you know, a national, an international embarrassment, but it should just be personally affronting to each of us. And you can't hear the fact that we have to mention in every discussion about the footy coming back that we have to get blokes out of the house so that they don't assault their wives um, or kill their wives, you know, or partners or, you know, whatever is something that, you know, like the homeless being in beds right now, we can't unsee this. But I, I sadly think that we will go back to being distracted by other things and we will at least in part unsee it. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true because we choose what to care about um, and our socialisation to, to an extent dictates it for us. You know, we have a series of shark attacks and we're talking nets and culls and all sorts of things um, instead of maybe don't swim where the sharks are uh, and it makes front page news everywhere. A woman is killed at least every week in this country by her partner. Some of them make the news, sure. The really horrific, usually rich white ladies with kids make the news. Um, if you're a sex worker, you don't make the news. If you're a woman of colour, you really make the news. If it's a busy news week with other things, it doesn't make the papers. Um, we still choose what to pay attention to. If our media reported truly what is important and urgent first we would have the story of Indigenous Australia and Indigenous disadvantage on the front page of every paper every day, but we don't. So, yeah, I think I worry that we choose what to care about. It's a conversation. So, I mean, look, we have to finish soon and launching into, you know, Indigenous Australia to um, We will be here for a while. There are also people is, yeah. much better qualified to talk about it than me. Well, of course, about all these things. But if we leave the conversations only to the people who are much more qualified to have them, then that's not going to help either. You know, I think that, you know, talking about these things and at least, you know, having discussions about the fact that we fucking care about them has got to be part of it. It can't be the only thing. And by far and away, it cannot uh, ever replace people who are experts, but like no one else having a conversation around it clearly isn't helping either. So I think that there is some value in at least saying, we think this is important. And one of the things that I think is most important and I mean this even just really, and I bring this up all the time, it is not the main reason I think it's important. I'm just looking at a way we can sell it to everybody is that we could just deal with it in a really meaningful fucking way, whatever that means, work out whatever the right, and 
the truth of it is that we've had consultations with Indigenous Australia around, you know, the Uluru Statement and a whole bunch of other things where there has been some practical guides to ways that we could, you know, move forward. Indigenous people came to Parliament with a document, with a united document, which is in mm. itself given how disparate Because they are not one person all either, or one voice. No. Far from. And so diverse and such complex and different experiences. And yet, you know, that community can get it together uh, and write the statement from the heart and bring it to Canberra and we ignore yeah. it, basically. They've essentially been your neighbour. They've come down with their bag of flour and they said, well, what we really need yeah. is 24 muffins and we've gone, fuck you and your muffins. And we've said we're not available. <laughs> Actually, not tr- not true. We didn't even say not available. I didn't answer the front door. Sorry. I just let it ring and went, nah. But, hey, actually, having said that, didn't make the muffins but gave us some banana bread. I, I so, think you – know. so what I was going to say is that um, I don't think – I can't – we've got to stop thinking about in some ways this is, will be anything other than a positive thing for this country because the hurt has already been done. Ignoring the fact that the hurt happened or trying to diminish the hurt or, you know, make it some – that, none of that's going to help anything. All we can do now is fix this. All we can do now is like, you know, and we can't fix it, but I mean, make some meaningful process in a way that, and surely as a country, we are all better for that. No one loses in that situation. Aren't you better to be a country? Aren't you a more vibrant and interesting country? Even from a purely economic point of view, when you can sell your country as the oldest living civilization in a proud way, not an exploitative way, and use, you know, that is actually part of the history of your country, surely that's better for everybody. I think we need to make very clear right now we're talking about efforts to close the gap, not about coronavirus being ultimately good for the country. Oh, yeah, sorry. That's what I thought you were saying, oh. and I was so confused. I was like, nah, I don't think so, man. I think it's pretty bad. Would that be great if I just brought that up <laughs> at the end, wouldn't it? <laughs> just snuck it in. Because like, yeah, threw a bomb in there. I think Will's actually pro coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, I think all that, un- all those unemployment cues and people standing out Centrelink, Will's into that. Uh, no, um, closing the gap. Yeah, I, as I a think country. you're 100% right. I agree. And part of it is going to take that national consensus and leadership because part of the problem has been a lot of white people in a lot of different circumstances making decisions and instituting programs with all the goodwill in the world that aren't cohesive, don't work together and aren't necessarily what that community wants. We need to recognise that each community is different. What works in one community will not work in another and we have to listen to the people who are living on the ground um, and who know the experience of being Indigenous and experiencing that disadvantage firsthand. It has to be led by them and paid for by us. There you go. So you put it much more concise way. That was so you, you were fine. We, did, we didn't even need the whole four minutes we had. You, you were fine. We, we just had to clarify what we were talking about. <laughs> Other than that, it was absolutely fine. Um, I ask people on this podcast uh, a question about a time machine. If you could go to back to any time in a time machine in your own life or in, uh, you know, someone else's life and, and visit it. And I, I've asked you this question, but I am, have been asked by a Patreon uh, supporter of this show that I re-ask the question to see if people's answers have changed. So I now have another time machine for you. Um, you have one round trip. You can go back to any time. Where are you going to? 
Oh, you don't have to go back, by the way. It was raised by Alex Dyson on this show the other day, something I had never really thought of, which is it's, it's a time machine. If you want, you can go forward. If, if, you, if that would make it more oh, interesting to you. Go, Is there Alex. a time you would like to go forward to? Wow. I wouldn't go forward, despite the temptations, um, because living with serious illness means there's always the possibility you won't be there, and that would be a really rude shock. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going forward because I don't want to know <laughs> and I want to assume that it's – I want our optimism from throughout this podcast to live with me so I don't want to know that I'll probably be disappointed on a lot of these things. Um, I'm almost certain but I can't remember that last time I would have said I went would go back to the time that my son was born. Uh not to drink in his cute babiness, but to let myself know that I hadn't ruined my life and actually it would be okay. Um, so this time I'm going somewhere different just because I can. Um, I would go back to that period when I first found out that I was sick um, uh, and first found out that I was physically sick, I should say. Um, I went through a really terrible few months. I think that's the first time in my life I've ever experienced really severe mental illness and I was extremely anxious and dissociating and developed a really intense fear of death and I would go back and say hey guess what spoiler you're gonna be fine like you will survive the brain surgery don't stress and I would just evaporate that pure panic I think that would just be good for everyone I could let some of my closest people know and then everyone would just chill a little bit um, and then if I can have one more, cause I'm cheating right now, all I want to do is talk to my nan. Um, she died a few years ago, but she lived through the tuberculosis pandemic and she, for a variety of reasons, had to stay at home. She had to leave school, stay at home and look after her siblings for nine months. And they didn't leave the neighborhood and they didn't see people. They stayed at home because of various risks, because of what was going on in their family. So she's done this before. And I, oh, how much I wish uh, that I'd paid more attention when I was a little kid and that I could go back and ask her a ton of questions. Yeah, I um, lost my nan during during the pandemic. So not not because oh, of well, not because sorry. of the pandemic. Mm. Uh, she was 97 years old. Uh, you know, she'd had a good crack at life. And um, but I have I was robbed. I do feel a little robbed. I know everybody's been robbed of things, but this is the one I feel robbed of was I was robbed the last visit. Uh, I came back from the Adelaide Fringe and I was sick and I couldn't get a corona test. And uh, yeah. it was in that period where I, I probably would have, it would have been a fine line between whether you were doing something hugely irresponsible to go and visit her when you were sick, when she was already not feeling well and already there was a bit of a warning around about those sort of things. And then by the time I was feeling a bit better, she was actually in hospital herself and then she was quarantined because they actually thought she had coronavirus. She didn't. She was just dying, unfortunately. But so anyway, during that time I've moved into state and we we couldn't go to the funeral because of the numbers and, you know, the travel. And yeah, I do. I feel robbed of that final conversation. That one that you get to have where you probably know it's the final conversation. And so often people don't get to have that anyway. And I had plenty of good conversations with my nan over the years, but I do, I very much relate to that. And I would have, I would have liked her wisdom during this time as well, because she saw a lot in those 97 years. And I imagine she would have had a pretty individual take on what we were going through right now as well. Oh, well, I'm so sorry. When 
I remember the last conversation I had with my nan and um, I was dating a new boy who is now my husband and she said, marry him. He's a lawyer. You'll never want for any money. <laughs> that was that was it. That was her loving goodbye advice. Marry him, I guess, you'll be rich. I, I and guess she in one was way, wrong. My nan wanted to, um, my nan and my pa wanted me to be an accountant when I was growing up. That was their big there dream for me. That's and all they I, worry about, security. I had let them down by pursuing, you know, telling dick jokes to strangers for 25 years. And the good news about, I guess, her going before the comedy festival got cancelled was she didn't have to see me be an unemployed stand-up comedian again. (laughs) (laughs) She got to go out with the faith that you could pay an accountant rather than be one. Exactly. So thank you very much for doing this today. It was really lovely to catch up with you and I really enjoyed this conversation. I I think this is a time where I would just love us all to be having conversations about what we think the world should look like when we go back to mm. what it is. And I think that once it's back and up and running, we won't have the time to have these conversations as much again. So I hope that some of the things we touched on today do we do take with us back into society. Give us some plugs. I'll do plugs at the top as well as I like to do. But uh, what are you? What are you? You're working on a new uh, show at the moment, like a podcast, a sort of. De- it's well, it's a podcast. It's a news show. It's a what is it? Tell me what this is. Um, I'm doing a bunch of stuff at the moment, but the big new one is the mm. briefing podcast, which. Uh, is a whole lot of fun. It's five days a week, all your weekdays. We get up disgustingly early to produce it and we give you the top five news stories of the day with a little bit of fun. It is aimed at a younger demographic and then we take a deep dive into one of them and it's hosted by Tom Tilly and then Annika Smithhurst, Jan Fran and I rotate the second spot and uh, other than the fact it means I don't get to see the girls when I'm actually recording uh, we are having a ball and it's a really good listen I have tuned into every episode uh, even though I'm not on most of them oh well that's good and give the plug to everything else that's going on as well oh god there's so much going on it's bad well good Um, well just say I have another podcast out called Anonymous Was a Woman, which is with Penguin Books and Future Women. And uh, we take the idea that women weren't allowed to be writers or anything serious back in the day because they had too many feelings. They were too emotional. Uh, We had to be too worried about them. And instead, we do each episode themed around a feeling. And we talk to women authors and we talk about books by women, books for women and books about women. Uh, We're having a ball. The first one is on anxiety, which is really useful in the current moment. Um, (laughs) What else am I doing? I've got a new children's book coming out shortly called I'm a Hero 2, which is about helping kids deal with their grief around coronavirus and find some empowerment and some joy in all of the changes as well. Well, it's been a delight. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. Oh, it was so much fun. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Will.